Hey, it's David Meerman Scott. I just had an awesome conversation with my friend Ryan at World of Speakers, and we talked about how you can develop fans of your speaking and the rest of your work. And what a great conversation, Ryan. I can't wait to listen to it again myself. <laughs> and a special bonus, if you listen to the end, we have a tweet challenge. If you're on Twitter, which I'm sure you are, the tweet challenge is for you. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast, brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Ahoy, everybody. We are back and we have, as always, a special guest today. And today we've got David Meerman Scott. Now, I have seen him on stage. I have read his books. He's best known for the new rules of marketing and PR. And he's making a transition into something that he calls fanocracy. Now, if you know me, you know I love to make up words and I'm super excited. I'm sold on the word fanocracy. We're going to talk today with David about what he's done, what he's doing and where he's going. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Awesome to be here. It's always great to be talking about speaking, which is so much fun, isn't it? <laughs> speaking inception. And I was just saying before we started recording, it's fun seeing you at these different conferences. And we had a fun little chat just outside of the hotel at Inbound. And I really always appreciate your look at how things are always on the new. And so I am a fan of your first book that you've been speaking about for 10 years. It still is relevant, but I am excited to dig into this fanocracy because I am a fan of making up words. And <laughs> your concept is turning fans into customers and customers into fans. And as speakers, we have our own set of fans and to build a business, it's important to leverage that. But before we go there, let's take, like Janet Jackson says, two steps back. And I want to put you kind of throw you under the bus. This is a love bus. No, no big okay. pressure. <laughs> but if I asked you to come up with a single standalone story, and that is the only thing that I had to introduce you to somebody like, oh my gosh, this guy, David, he's awesome. <laughs> this one time, what story would you pull from the multitude that you have to pull from? Oh my, asking a storyteller to, to choose a story. Uh, so I think it goes back to 2002. And I was working for a company in the technology business, and I was marketing my ass off <laughs> this company and doing a great job and using what I now call the new rules of marketing and PR, not buying advertising. And the company was acquired by Thomson Reuters. And they gave me a little look over and a bit of a sniff and said, dude, you're, you're out. You're fired. <laughs> you no longer have a job. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, what do I do now? And fortunately, it was a horrible job market because it was just a couple of months after the 9-11 disasters. And so I ended up having to, no choice, start my own business. And I have been happily unemployed for 17 years now. Okay. So are you a gambler? Do you play the fate card a lot? 
I don't gamble, but I do believe in the airy-fairy kind of fate idea that the universe sort of sends you the things that are important for you to have, and it's up to you to figure out what that means and then go with it. So I guess you could say that I believe in fate, but I believe that you are given many, many gifts in life, and it's up to you to figure out how to make use of those gifts. Okay, I smell your third book as Fatocracy. <laughs> nice. That's awesome, um, yeah. And the reason I ask that is just, you know, trying to get to know sort of what makes you tick. And you use the word, you know, like, fortunately, it was a horrible market, and you had to start your own business. So do you see the sequence of the steps that you found with success, this combination of life happening to you, and then you just essentially making the moves to deal with it? Because your, your whole book is like a new way, like new rules. Are you always looking to create the new rules based on the environment changing? Well, I think that there is some aspects to that. But what I've found has been the most successful for me as I'm thinking about new ideas from a big picture perspective is I look for, I'm constantly on the lookout for a set of patterns that I see in the universe very, very clearly that other people, for whatever reason, either don't see or more likely perhaps have seen but don't act on. So with the new rules of marketing and PR, I feel like I was given an, I was given an unfair advantage. And the reason I say that is because I worked for several years in the financial information world for companies like Dow Jones and Thomson Reuters. And that was pre-internet. And so I was working for companies doing electronic information prior to the internet revolution, or the, actually the web revolution. So that when web communications came and marketing went to the web, I had this massive set of patterns in my brain that I didn't feel like anyone else was seeing. And that was that marketing on the web is about content creation, not about advertising. And I started to write and speak and talk about that way back in the 1990s, late 1990s. And at first, no one paid attention. And then a few people paid attention. I wrote a book that did okay. But then the new rules of PR, marketing and PR came out almost exactly at the same time that Twitter launched, a little bit after YouTube launched. And it was a rocket ship because all of a sudden people said, whoa, this guy identified what's going on. And it was because I saw this set of patterns that I feel like other people didn't see. And that book now is in the sixth edition. It sold over 400,000 copies in the English language and it's in 29 other languages. So I guess I did see a pattern that was important in that particular case. And I've seen a number of other patterns along the way. And Generally, those, if they're important patterns, becomes books for me and also ideas for what I can do on stage as a speaker. Okay, so here's a question going back to your youth. Were there any type of sports that you, that you played or that you were a fan of? No, absolutely not. But I was a massive, massive live music fan. Not playing, but going to shows. Massive. I'm actually such a geek about it. I keep a spreadsheet and I've, I've been to, as of this week, because I did go to a show this week, I've been to <laughs> 790 rock concerts, including 75 from the Grateful Dead. And I just like absolutely love going to these shows, starting from when I was age 15. 
And I've been to some epic ones because you sort of stumble into history sometimes when you go to shows. For example, I was the only photographer at Bob Marley's last concert. And the photographs I took are really historic and were appeared in the Marley documentary. I was just a really, really big fan and still am a really big fan of live music. It's interesting because I'm trying to figure out where your, your heat-seeking radar of patterns is. And I wonder if, if something to do with music has sort of preset you for paying attention and listening within. So I'm going to take a stretch here, but in these live events and just in music in general, are you really more into what they're, the lyrics? Or are you really into the bass lines? Or are you into the whole thing? Like, I just want to understand and pick apart your pattern predictiveness. <laughs> I think I, I've actually given it a heck of a lot of thought over the last five years because I've just really dug into this whole idea of fandom and what makes people a fan. And I, I really wanted to understand my own fandom around live music. And I, I think what it is, is that I felt kind of like when I was younger, as I was a bit of an outsider. I was a bit of somebody who would tend to sort of hang in the background and, and watch rather than participate. And I found that the live music scene was something where I fit into. And I went to shows with really good friends of mine, and we became really close because a couple times a month, I lived in Connecticut, I would get on the train and go to New York City and go to one of the clubs or go to Madison Square Garden or go to the Palladium or one of the places there and see live music. And it was something I understood. It was something that it was the whole scene. It was other like-minded people getting together. It was a shared emotional bond over what was going on. And if it was a band I knew really well, I knew kind of what was coming as they would play certain songs, especially true over time with Grateful Dead. And that became something that kind of defined me in an interesting way. And, and I loved it. And I still love it. And I'm still going to shows, <laughs> even 40 years later. Okay, book number five, Fit in them. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so it's interesting that for me, this idea of a fan and this idea of fitting in really sort of ties into one of the challenges that I think speakers face, which is how do they get the audience to fit in? How do you speak to a certain market without feeling like you're leaving everybody else behind? And, and just this idea, I haven't really thought about fandom when it comes to speaking and fitting in, but I, I think I've got a nice, a better picture here of, of, of your live music experience as really an anecdote to fandom, really, at the end of the day, right? I think so, yeah. And I've, I, you know, my live music fandom is really important to me because that's what I love to do. But it also, as a speaker, I watch, you know, what does Mick Jagger do on the stage? What does David Byrne, who I saw three times in the last two weeks, by the way, wow, uh, what does David Byrne do on the stage? You know, what are these iconic musicians? How do they put a set list together? Because a set list becomes much like, how do you put a great speech together? When do you bring people up? When do you take them down? How do you interact with the audience? How do you make them part of the event? I've seen rock stars go into the audience. I've seen rock stars get on top of speakers. I've seen rock stars do all kinds of really interesting things. And I've experimented with all of those things. And then when I, when I was talking to my daughter, Reiko, she's now 26, but we first started talking and geeking out about this idea of fandom when she was 21, five years ago. And I said, you know, Reiko, what, 
is it with me going to 75 Grateful Dead shows? Isn't that ridiculous? And she said, well, that, that's not as ridiculous as me. I love Harry Potter so much. Not only have I read all the books multiple times and seen all the movies and gone to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and gone to London to go on the studio tour, but I just finished a 90,000-word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix, and I put it on a fan fiction site for free, and there's been thousands of people who have downloaded it, and hundreds of people have commented on it. Maybe we're just geeks. <laughs> so we ended up researching and writing what turned into a book called Fanocracy together, and as I was writing the book, researching and writing the book over the last five years, I was also being very conscious about how some of those ideas could make me a better speaker, make me better at my, what I think of as my art of being on a stage, and also maybe make it easier for me, not easier is not the right word, but make it more possible for me to develop more fans of my own work. And so it was kind of a, kind of an interesting dual experiment to not only figure out how organizations of all kinds can develop fans and what we can learn from things like Harry Potter and rock concerts, but then how I can personally use those ideas myself. Well, I love it. And book number six, by the way, Geek, uh, Geektocracy. <laughs> Geektocracy. Right? You know what you have to do before I do it is buy some of those URLs because I found that when you name something, I guess the, the one I'm most successful with so far is I named uh, Newsjacking and um, wrote a book called Newsjacking and did a bunch of speeches on Newsjacking. Have the URL, newsjacking.com. And very recently... The Oxford English Dictionary named newsjacking to the dictionary, and they mentioned me along with it. So when you create a name <laughs> like that, it's essential, number one, to let people use it. Don't try to trademark it. And number two, buy the URL. <laughs> got it. Got it. I'm, I, I, let's pause for a minute. Uh, I, I'll be right yeah, back. Right, got to go to go, Daddy. Hang, give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to transition. I think we've got a good idea of your geekiness, which is on point, and your daughter's a geek, and it's all in the best non pejorative way and your geekiness is is going to help all of us geek out on all of this but when it comes to speaking tips and tricks you know let's maybe kind of go back to some of what these rock stars are doing i love this concept and what are some of the things that if you had a limited amount of time for an upcoming or more importantly a well-seasoned speaker to sort of refresh and shake the cages of what they think they should be doing where would you start with them like what are some of the things that because obviously you see a lot of speakers. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that are missed opportunities that a rock star is teaching that you're just not seeing? Or how do you tap into this fandom from the stage? Well, there's one particular technique that I really have had quite a big success with recently. And I learned it actually from a couple of different rock stars. The first time this kind of entered my brain I had seen it before, but the first time it entered my brain as something that I could do in my own work was I was at a Rolling Stones concert and I saw Mick Jagger was very close to the front of the stage and he gave a fan a high five. And I'm like, oh, wow, that like struck me as being interesting. Hmm. And I don't know why, it just sort of filed it in the back of my brain. And then a couple of years later, I was at Outside Lands Music Festival and I was uh, and I wanted to catch a set by St. Vincent, an artist I really like. So I went early to that particular stage. There was nobody playing on that stage at the time and went, got way up front and waited. 
And then the music started. It was great. And I loved it. But then Annie Clark, the, the head of the lead of St. Vincent, walked down the steps of the stage into the audience and played a guitar solo. And she was directly in front of me. And I took a picture, posted on my Instagram. It got a bunch of people talking about it. But then about a week later, when all the, the different news articles came out about that particular festival, that moment, that one single moment was highlighted as one of the standout moments, not just of her set, but of the entire festival. She was close to us. And the photographs of that became, you know, really viral. They went all over the place. So I thought to myself, what the heck is going on here? And I researched this idea and we spoke to some neuroscientists. And it turns out that the idea of proximity to other people is something that's important to understand because we humans are hardwired to have a stronger emotional bond to other people the closer we get to them. So what that means for a performer is, is it possible to get closer physically to the people in the audience? And, you know, there are some speakers who kind of go out into the audience, but I'm not sure if it's purposeful from the perspective of actually having a closer connection to the audience. And it turns out from speaking to some neuroscientists that there's several zones of influence. There's the zone of influence, which is the furthest away, that's public space, that's further than 20 feet away, and we humans don't really pay attention to people that are that far away. But guess what? That's how far away the uh, audience is from a speaker who's on stage. Yeah. Right. But the next zone is called the social zone. That's from about four feet to about 20 feet. That becomes a more powerful emotional bond. And then from a foot and a half to four feet is even stronger. And that's called the public, uh, the, uh, the personal zone. So it turns out the closer you get to someone, and this is very important, if they trust you and see you as somebody who's a friend or who's somebody who's, who can be helpful to you, that is a strong, positive emotional bond. But if they see you as somebody who's a threat, it makes an even stronger negative reaction. That's why when you get into a crowded elevator, you feel a little bit weird because you've got people who might be a threat who are next to you. Now, what's important from the neuroscience perspective is that this is non-negotiable. This is hardwired into all of us humans, and it doesn't matter actually what nationality you're from, what background you're from. It's constant over all humans. What does that mean for a speaker? It means that as you've built up a rapport with your audience and as they begin to trust you, don't try to do this in the very beginning of the talk, but towards the end of the talk, can you go into the audience? Can you get into the personal space and the social space of some of the audience members? That's going to be incredibly powerful for those audience members. But here's something even more interesting. Because of the power of mirror neurons, something else we learned from some neuroscientists as we were researching the book Fanocracy is that that powerful human connection is also delivered to people who are seeing you on a screen. Now, this works in the bigger events when there's a large screen. It also has potential to work 
when people are seeing you far away going close to someone, but not as much as when you're on the IMAG screens on a bigger event. So that's one of the reasons why we feel like we know movie stars personally, because we see them on, on the big screen and they feel like they're in our personal space. They feel like they're in sort of a foot and a half to four feet from us. It feels like we're having a cocktail party conversation with them and, we're, and we trust them and it feels good and we have an emotional connection. So the simple act of getting close to several people in the audience has a multiplying, magnifying effect to everyone in the audience if you're on video and if the camera person is zoomed in such a way that you feel like you're part of that audience. I love that. So kind of an interesting question on that. If somebody brings somebody up on stage for, say, a demo or a live demo, part of my talks will bring people up on stage. Does the science say anything about getting into that personal space with an individual and then you and that individual are still 20 feet away? Does that help to trigger more of a connection or is it that you, you're going into the audience to really maximize it? It works either way, and what you're doing works brilliantly well because you are having a personal connection with one person in the audience within each other's personal space, presuming you're in within four feet of that person. And that's what you want to do. That's the conscious thing that you need to do in that situation is position yourselves so that you're within four feet because four feet is kind of the the dividing line between what's called social space, which is four feet to 20 feet, and personal space, a foot and a half to four feet. So you want to get within that four feet. And then especially if that goes on camera, then other people are seeing it. They can see it from far away if you're not on camera, and they can still have a sense that through this concept of mirror neurons that you're in personal space with them because they're projecting that even though you're not, they're not the one who's on stage, they feel as if they are on stage with you. Just like when Mick Jagger did that high five to someone in the audience, I kind of felt like that high five was going to me too in a weird way. It's just like if I take a bite of lemon, oh my gosh, that lemon is so tart. It makes my eyes crunch up. It makes my mouth pucker. I can feel the saliva in my mouth. And maybe you did too. <laughs> yeah, I winced just a little bit. <laughs> and that's again, because of mirror neurons, because our brains fire when we see somebody or, or hear somebody doing something like that. That's why we might cry at a movie or get scared in a movie and so on. So yes, your technique absolutely can work. And the more you're conscious of actually positioning people. So number one, that you're together, make sure that, you know, that that person is comfortable, that they're laughing and smiling and mirroring what you're doing. And that can be incredibly powerful, not only for that single person, but for everybody as you're delivering that talk. You know, most people, most public speakers, they're up on the stage 20 feet away from everybody and they don't create a place in their speech where they're physically close to anybody, except for maybe the person who does the introduction of them in the beginning and then shakes their hand as they're walking off the stage. I love it. All right. So you got the moves like Jagger, move, 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 moves like Jagger. I will always remember that now. <laughs> and I like that you said inserting a place in your talk where you know that you're going to facilitate that. That's awesome. All yeah, right. it's the it's making this consciously part of what you're doing, because if you build it in and you make it conscious and it has to be natural, that's a critical component. I've, I've done this now for 10 years made this part of my speech for 10 years. 
didn't really know why in the beginning and have really come around to analyzing it from all these perspectives of neuroscience. But the more natural it feels, like it's not like, now I'm going to the audience because I was told I need to do that. Right. <laughs> because that'll come across as actually being a negative aspect of your presentation because people are like questioning what, in, from the body language perspective, what in the heck is this person doing? But if you're doing what you just described, naturally having someone come on stage to do a demo, one of the techniques I use is that I go into the audience and ask a series of questions with shows of hands. And then I call on a couple of people who have their hands up to relate to me. I give them, and I have a handheld mic that I carry with me and I give them the microphone. So I, when I speak in a big audience, like a thousand people or 2000 people, I'm still the mic runner. I'm not using one of the mic runners of, you know, mm. in the production. And I'm not asking the audience to walk up to a microphone on a stand, but I'm actually carrying the mic myself because that gives me a natural way to hand the microphone to someone and presto, I'm within, I'm in between a foot and a half and four feet of them by doing that action. That is your Mick Jagger giving the, giving the high five right yeah, there. No, that's right. That's right. It's a mic five. Yeah. And I've done it <laughs> enough times now that it doesn't feel dorky and I'm not, and it's a natural sort of thing to be able to do that. Now, the real question is when you identify somebody, do you do like a little half jog hustle <laughs> to get over there? I do. No, I run really fast <laughs> because sometimes in some really big rooms, like I've done this at, at, at some Tony Robbins events with over 2000 people and the person who I want to call on can be I don't know, a hundred feet away. And I, I got my running shoes on quite literally. I'm wearing sneakers and I run <laughs> and people kind of laugh, but I'm actually pretty fit. I focus a lot on my fitness so I don't get winded running. I run over there and then, and people like always comment, Oh, high energy speaker, high energy speaker. Well, yeah. Cause I ran around a little bit, right, right. <laughs> but I built it in naturally. It's not like I just went for a jog in the middle of my speech, you know? So yeah. it's all about making this stuff natural. I think, you know, the Mick Jagger high five, I wouldn't doubt it if somebody told me that, Oh yeah, Mick Jagger only does one high five every show and it's in the same place. I wouldn't doubt that, but it felt so natural. Right. That's interesting. So you mentioned Tony and, uh, you know, he's made a huge impact on my life from far, from 20 feet away, right? Somebody bought me a ticket to the Unleash Your Power Within. I didn't know what I was getting into. And long story short, you know, four days you walk on coals. And the biggest takeaways that I got is that he challenged me to do something simple every day, but do it every day. And then something that's a big, hairy, crazy goal that's going to take you three to five years. And so I started drawing stick figures that day. Mm. I've drawn them forever, but I decided to draw it every day. And that was five years ago. And now I have thousands of stick figures. It's part of my brand. It's like my daily routine. And secondly, the big hairy goal was this book that I wanted to write five years ago. And it comes out called Ditch the Act. So it, it's amazing. I saw a mad respect for him and talk about high energy. He's like the Tony Robbins of Tony Robbins, right? <laughs> and... <laughs> Next time I see him, I'm going to tell him that. Tell him, tell him somebody who, uh, who you inspired five years ago when describing you used yourself and your own brand Halo to describe yourself. He's the Tony Robbins of professional speakers. <laughs> <laughs> but he actually wrote the foreword for Fanocracy, right? He did, yeah, because I've spoken at all of his business mastery events, and he's a big fan of the idea of building fans, and I, of course, knew that. And so when I told him I was doing a book on on fandom. I didn't have the title at the time. So I used the word fandom. I said, 
Would you be willing to do the forward? Oh, yeah, of course. Happy to do that, David. It's a topic I love. I love your stuff. I love what you've been doing on my stage, and I'd be happy to do it. So, yeah, so he was very kind to be able to do that. Well, awesome. For all those Tony fans out there, this is uh, another chance to sort of fan through the fandom. So uh, if one of those uh, SAT tests, if something is to something, then something is to something. So like, (laughs) if Tony is to your inspiration, then David will be to your fandom. Like, it's all connected. Nice. I love it. I love it. It it feels like there's a stick figure diagram of that coming on. Yeah, actually, you didn't see it, but I just bit my finger, which means I was thinking. And uh, yeah, that's going to (laughs) happen. Nice. (laughs) Okay, so that was great. Knowing to be conscious and make a natural attempt at getting closer to your audience to fire the mirror neurons and to create this space that makes it more personal, all while hustling to get the microphone there and making it all feel extremely natural as if none of it was planned. Absolutely. Okay. So that's enough to chew on and to integrate. I want to transition now into the business of speaking and just the fact that you're speaking at Tony Robbins events, that he's writing your forward, that you've been doing this for 10 years, that you've had, you know, phenomenally successful publications. Where would even someone start to take some of that and be like, wow, here's a couple things I can apply to my speaking business. You know, I believe in abundance. I love speakers who believe in abundance. So what's your best advice for growing that speaking business, getting in front of more and more people more often? So I have two things I'd I'd like to riff on just for a moment. The first one is, we touched on this at the top of the show. It's this idea of seeing patterns. I think for me, I'm going to do another music metaphor here. I think for me, when I discover a pattern in the universe no one else has seen and I create something original, that's a musician who's creating original music. I've been the most successful doing that. When I've sort of piggybacked off someone else's ideas, I've never copied anyone, but when I've sort of thought, oh yeah, that's a great idea, I should do that too, that's Again, the music metaphor, that's like a cover band playing somebody else's music. I've never been successful with that. So I think from the business of speaking, you know, whether it's creating books or creating a speech or creating your own style or whatever it is, you know, sure, you can check out a few experts. You know, there's a ton of stuff on this podcast that's so valuable. But ultimately, you know, being a cover act isn't going to do it. You know, if I just copied Tony Robbins and tried to be a mini Tony Robbins, that wouldn't work for me. Creating my own thing has been incredibly important to me and to my business. So that would be my biggest advice. My second advice actually really comes from this idea of fanocracy, where my daughter and I studied what it is to be a fan and how organizations or people or, or speakers like us can develop fans is that do whatever you need to do to pay attention to every single person who reaches out to you. And, you know, when you have a book or when you get off of a stage, you will have quite a few people who will want to have a moment, you know, shake your hand, take a selfie, they'll send you an email, they'll include you in a tweet or whatever. And I think it's really, really important to acknowledge those moments and respond to them. And I come at that from the perspective of a fan. I often on Twitter will reach out to rock stars, to authors, to people who have written a news story that I liked, 
And I'll call them. I'll say, hey, you know, insert Twitter ID here. (laughs) I love that show. It was great. Thank you for doing it. You know, something like that. I get a response less than 10% of the time. And sometimes it's, it's so silly. You know, it's like I'll tweet to a band that has like 20,000 followers on Twitter or something. And I'll say, Hey, love the show. Thanks so much. Can't wait to see you guys again. And I won't get any response. And I'm like, freaking heck, what is going on here? I have 125,000 followers on Twitter. You're not going to respond. What in the world are you thinking? So, you know, if there's a line of people, everybody wants you to sign the book wait until every single person gets a moment with you. When I get off the a Tony Robbins stage, just as an example, there might be 300 tweets that have mentioned me when I'm on the stage. I will, that night, for two hours, sit there and respond to every single one of them in some way or another. And I think that's incredibly important, and especially as you're coming up to do that. Every single one of those people then have an opportunity to become the kind of fan that buys everything you put out, buys every one of your books, or says to their boss, or says to the the head of their association, this is the speaker we should hire this year. I love that attention to everyone. And I am living proof of that. I remember seeing you speak at the content marketing conference, and I tweeted you up because there was so many cool little nuggets and you tweeted me back. And then that good gave- thing I tweeted you back. Otherwise, you'd call <laughs> me out as a liar. <laughs> totally. No, I think that's important. And it's sometimes hard to forget how important some of those fundamental foundational fan building activities are. One question I have for you. So so Speaker Hub, for example, you know, it's a place where speakers can go and, and highlight who they are and what they're after and people will reach out to them through the platform, but they also have a call for speakers. So I'm curious with you at your stage, did you leverage call for speakers? Were you out there actually applying as well? Or did you focus on just the inbound, right? Like this idea of reaching out for opportunity versus building the brand that brings the opportunities to you. If you could speak a little on that, I'd love to know your path. Yeah, sure. Of course. So I don't know if my path is emblematic of, of other people's. We all have our own journeys, but When I first started speaking after I was fired in 2002, I really didn't know much about the business. And I did do some proactive outreach to the sorts of conferences that I knew. At that point, I either didn't have a book or when my first book came out, it didn't get much notice. It was actually called Cashing In With Content. It was the first book about content marketing, but it suffered from a horrific title. <laughs> no one, I didn't use the word marketing in it, dumb me. And that came out in 2005, so that was pretty early. And I would reach out to conferences, and, and some of them booked me, but I, I wasn't very good at it. I didn't really know enough about it. There was no speaker hub then to, to sort of aggregate all of it. But then in 2007, the new rules of marketing and PR came out and it was a massive instant hit. It just sold crazy numbers of copies. It hit the Business Week bestseller list and remained on that list for six months. It just really did extremely well very, very quickly. And it was kind of like, oh my God, here comes the one hit wonder, you know, and (laughs) another music metaphor. And I was getting a, a ridiculous number of inbound inquiries, averaged more than one per day, qualified inbound inquiries. And I had to sort of pick and choose because I couldn't fit them into my calendar at that point. But that was early. And that sort of 
dropped off. Um, I still get lots of inbound inquiries still to this day, 12 years later. But at that time, there was so many. And I focused more on my inbound. And I hired a speaker manager. His name is Tony D'Amelio. And he's an interesting kind of almost hybrid in that he came from the bureau business. He ran Washington Speakers Bureau for a, a long time. He's an executive vice president there. And then he decided to start his own business to represent speakers as opposed to representing the clients, which is what speakers bureaus do. And he has, um, I think there's about 10 of us that he manages, including Bob Woodward and, and including Bill Walton and some other people. And so he does a lot of my proactive speaker outreach for me. But I definitely will think, oh, here's somewhere that feels like a good fit and I'll reach out. But that's pretty rare for me. Yeah, at this point. But I, I was more concerned about as you were coming up. So, uh, you know, I'd love the answer. As I was coming up, I did. Yes. Now, here's a question, uh, something that a lot of people are trying to become more informed on and people have their opinions. Bureau or no bureau? And at what point do you decide to make that jump? Do you need to be bureau ready before you jump? And I know it's a complicated answer. So, you could probably just say your what patterns you see in the value of joining a bureau and what timing in your speaking career trajectory. So I think that bureaus are amazing and fantastic. And I love that I work with multiple bureaus. I've probably been booked by, oh, I don't know, 40 or 50 bureaus over the years. I'm just guessing. I don't know what the number is. Perhaps it's a little bit less than that. Um, as we're recording this, I'm speaking in five days in Cartagena, Colombia, and that's through a bureau. So a bureau hired me to speak in Colombia. I'm actually bringing my wife on this particular one. She goes with me when we go to cool places. Mm -hmm. And so for me, bureau the bureaus have been fabulous. I did at one point do a little bit of consideration of whether I should go exclusive with one bureau or not. And I decided in the end not to do that because I was getting a lot of uh, business from multiple bureaus. But what I did do was ended up going with a speaker manager, which is somebody I mentioned him earlier, Tony D'Amelo. He works for me as opposed to working for the clients. And he works with all of the speakers bureaus. So he's kind of my interface with the speakers bureaus. So I think what my advice would be is if you do a great job on the stage, if you have a book that has some traction, gets some popularity, maybe hits a bestseller list, speakers bureaus will be interested in you. And then the challenge is, do you want to go exclusive with one bureau or not? And I think what my advice would be is that if you do other things besides speaking, if you're the CEO of a company, and I have a number of friends who've gone exclusive who are CEOs of companies because they only want to do 10 or 20 paid speaking engagements and they want to focus the rest of their time on running their business. Or if you're famous for something else and speaking is a side business, an exclusive arrangement can be great. If you're somebody who just doesn't want to deal with the minutia, hates doing contracts, hates doing the, the business of speaking, doesn't like to negotiate, doesn't like to collect money. An exclusive arrangement with a bureau can also be good for you because you can have someone else do all of those things for you. So there's a number of different scenarios for which, in my experience, going exclusive with a bureau or hiring somebody like I have as a speaker manager can be a really powerful thing. And I think 
that it does take a lot of very careful consideration before you, you choose one of those paths. And I've, I know a bunch of people who have done multiple different versions of paths like that, and, and some of them are really, really happy with the decisions they've made. You know, in connecting the dots, I'm a doodler, so I've been doodling and taking notes this whole time, and I, and I have this kind of like dot connection all the way back up to the fanocracy at the top. It's almost as though the way you just described that, you're treating these bureaus and individuals who are potentially representing you you've got to make them your fans. Yes. And then essentially you turn them, like when they become a fan of you, you're going to come top of mind, you're going to get booked. And then technically that's the customer element, but then taking those customers, the people who you speak at, like that next level, the your fan gets you on a stage. And now that customer, you get them to become a fan. And it's this like cyclical connecting the dots, fans to customers, customers to fans, as a speaker with bureaus, you know, people who come up to you afterwards, kind of a nice full circle there. That's the way I look at it. That's exactly the way I look at it. And I'll give you a very specific example of that. As I was launching the new speech and the new book and talking to bureaus about it, I actually created a webinar as well as an actual printed, I think it's 16-page guide for speakers bureaus on how to create fans. So Hmm. I took the ideas in the book and turned it into a purpose-built webinar. And I think I had a hundred, something like a hundred bureau representatives participated in the webinar, which is a remarkable number. And then we sent out, Tony and I, my, my speaker manager, Tony, I think we sent out about 50 or 60 early copies of the book, so-called galley proofs of the book, together with the guide. And it's called How to Create a fanocracy in your speakers bureau. I also sent a version of that to some event planners and how to create a fanocracy at your event. So the way I look at that is exactly what you just said, is that I'm trying to make those bureau representatives my fans and just doing what everybody else does, which is, you know, send a book or send a speaker reel and say, please book me. You're just like everybody else, but if you add some value, provide something of interest, you know, how do you create fans? Here's how you do it. And, you know, can you create something that will be of value to those bureaus so that they'll remember you when they have to think about hiring somebody to speak for an event coming up? And I've done that a number of different times over the years for bureaus. I ran a, a webinar about newsjacking some number of years ago also for bureaus. So it's not about me. It's about my fans, about the bureaus. It's about having something of value that they can use. And we call that here on the show fanocracyception. buy that url right now oh yeah i've got a list here and then uh, also back to what you said right when we started talking about building your speaker business you said the only times you've really found that the large wins is when you're doing things that are based on patterns you see that are original and you're right everybody tries to do the same thing in the outreach so it's a great sort of final challenge here for everybody to look at those who are representing you as fans look at those stages that you stand on as your customers, look at the audience members as your fans, and then have that cycle continue for a fanocracy section, all due to David and Reiko, his daughter who wrote fanocracy.com. Is it a dot com? 
it is fanocracy.com, which is a good place to go to check out what's going on there. And um, yeah, it really is a fun kind of full circle to have written the book with my daughter, talk about the idea of fanocracy, and then use the ideas to build my own business. It's kind of neat. Love it. Hey, well, there's a lot to dissect in here. I'm going to listen to this a few times myself. Maybe I'll write a 100,000 word alternative ending to this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, in all seriousness, I really appreciate your time today. And I'm excited to bump into you at these conferences as I continue to build my business. And, you know, it's just, it's great. It's fun, fundamental information. If I think the biggest thing that I would, I have taken away from here is just being conscious about proximity and making sure you're really paying attention to every single person who wants to be a fan. You've got to give them that opportunity, and it's a two-way street. Uh, really, in the light that you shed it, it's not about somebody being a fan of you. It's about you also being a fan of them. And you mentioned Twitter. Um, well, first of all, people are going to go to fanocracy.com. That's a given. But what's your favorite platform for them to listen to this to then shout out? Is it Twitter if they say, wow, that podcast was great? Yeah, Twitter is where I am frequently. And I am DM Scott. That's D-M-S-C-O-T-T on Twitter. Something we didn't touch on, but I'll mention here really briefly, is that you need to stand out when you create a book title, like we talked about with Fanocracy, but also your name. I use my middle name, Meerman, professionally because there are a whole bunch of David Scotts out there, and some of them are speakers, um, including uh, the commander of Apollo 15, <laughs> who walked on the moon, including the mem a member of Congress from Georgia, including an Ironman triathlon champion. All None of those are me. So I use David Meerman Scott in my business. So if you Google my full name, you get me and only me. A lot of speakers, you Google their name, you get all sorts of other people. Right. Look at that. Dropping nuggets after the curtain has closed. That is a look behind the curtain. Awesome <laughs> stuff. And I'm going to say for anybody who takes this episode and tweets it out and tags DM Scott as well as at Ryan Fulland, not only will I commit to David replying to you, but I will also reply to you. So awesome. you get one tweet for the sake of two tweets, and then we'll just continue to share this great information. David, it's been a pleasure. Have a good rest of your day, night, evening, year, all that stuff. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Ryan. I really appreciate it. All right. Adios. Adios.